Welcome to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church Podcast. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to step into the life God has for you. For more information about our church, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com. Good morning, church. So good to see you. Hey, my name is Luke, and I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here at Mount Zion, and we want to welcome everyone who is joining us online this morning. A little bit of congregational participation. Who among you has a younger sibling? Can I see, a, can I see some hands? Who has a younger sibling? Yeah? Wow. All right. Now, who among you would say that at times... That younger sibling is or has been in the past sometimes a little annoying. All right, just show of hands. Yeah, pretty much, uh, 100%, right? 100% of participation, right? Now, I have the vantage seat in my life of being a middle child, meaning that I have had the opportunity to be annoying to my older brother, but I've also had the opportunity to bear witness to an annoying younger sister, And sibling rivalry, this is something that we have seen played out in the public arena since the beginning of time. In fact, we oftentimes we love seeing this. I mean, since the very beginning, you had Cain and Abel, and then even more recently, you had Peyton and you had Eli, you had Serena and Venus, you had William and Harry. I mean, even the royalty, they can't get away from this. You had in a coaching arena, you had Jim and John Harborough and I mean, all of the Kardashians, right? I mean, everybody, it seems like this sibling rival, we can't get enough. We, we love to watch it and we love to see it play out before our very eyes. Oftentimes, in our own living rooms, you know, I have, you know, two girls have one on the way and, and we get to see this lived out on a daily basis. Ella, the youngest, gets to be a little bit annoying. At times, she knows what buttons to push of Ava's, and she loves to push those buttons. All right, can I get an amen? There's probably no better example of sibling rivalry than we see in the story of Joseph. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you'll join me in Genesis chapter 37, we're going to pick up halfway through verse 2 and I think that this will resonate for everyone who has a younger sibling. Genesis uh, chapter 37, beginning in verse two, says this. But Joseph, but Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. So this is the classic tattletale syndrome. I mean, Joseph, he, he's a snitch. And you know what they say about snitches, all right? They get stripped naked and thrown into a cistern, right? Well, that's what happens. We're going to find out a little bit about that later. But it never goes well for tattletales. And then picking up in verse 3, Jacob, he loved Joseph more, more than any of his other children, because Joseph, he had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest, and they couldn't say a kind word about him. What you see here is something that we oftentimes miss. You see, Jacob, Joseph's father, 
He knew what it was like to have a dad who played favorites. He knew the hurt. He knew the anguish. He knew the dysfunction that could be caused when a brother or an older sibling is, is shown favor, or a younger sibling is shown favor. And yet Jacob, he repeats past sins, past discretions. Jacob, in this moment, he is continuing a generational curse. And more than that, not only did Jacob show his love to Joseph, but he, he actually told him and he did show him, he, he gave him this robe and a special gift. And in this culture, a robe clothing, it was a place of significance. It was a symbolic gesture. Think about the story of, of the prodigal son. And this is all at the hands of a father who is pitting their sons, his sons, against one another. This is why Ephesians chapter six, verse four, reminds us of dads. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. It's as if we as dads, we have this way of provoking competition. We have this way of provoking anger, competitiveness, comparison with our children. And scripture is reminding us that if we do this, it does bear results, it does bear fruit, but it is not the fruit that any of us want to harvest. So Joseph, he has a dream, and he has a dream that his father and, and mother and all 11 brothers bow down before him in honor because of his authority. Now the dream is, it's, it's one thing, but Joseph, he tells his brothers and his mom and dad about this dream. Why? I believe it's not because Joseph is dumb. I believe it's because Joseph in him has been bred this competitiveness against his brothers. So they're sitting at the breakfast table and they're all having their bowl of Cheerios. And Joseph says, hey, I had a dream last night that every one of you bowed down before me at my feet. And you, as you can imagine, this didn't go well. It did not sit well with the brothers. So they came up with this plan, this scheme. So remember, Joseph is on his way to spy on his brothers as they are watching over the flock. Picking up in verse 23. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing then they grabbed him and they threw him into a cistern, but the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So in this moment, the very source of tension that exists, the beautiful robe was the first thing that the brothers went after. And oftentimes in our own lives, when we have this sibling rivalry, isn't it the thing, the gift of the other that oftentimes we attack even if it's not blood relation, oftentimes that gift, that's something that is beautiful, is the very thing that we try to rob away, that we try to steal from their very identity. So they throw Joseph in the bottom of this well, and Reuben, one of his brothers, he plans to come back and to, to rescue him later on in the evening, but it doesn't work out that way. And picking up in verse 25, 
Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and they saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelites, traders, taking a load of gum and balm and aromatic resin from Gilead to Egypt. Now, it's important here to notice the, the Ishmaelite tribe. These were descendants of Ishmael. And this would have been, once again, generational curse coming for full fold, coming full circle. You see, Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, he had an adulterous affair with a, one of his servants named Hagar, and she gave birth to Ishmael. And Ishmael, he started this tribe, this family. So Joseph is literally being bought by some distant relatives. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is in this moment, what could possibly bring this relationship back together? What could restore this brokenness? You thought you had some family dysfunction? Can you imagine being thrown into a well, just naked, left to the elements, and then with the intentions of, of killing you, but instead selling you into slavery. You see, in a broken world, brothers, brothers become enemies. And don't we see this played out in our relationships, in our community, in our politics, in our foreign relations, in our neighborhoods, around our dinner table? Family, humanity, being pinned against one another. Brothers are now enemies. So what is it going to take for reconciliation to take place? What is it going to take for healing to be a reality? It's almost as if a resurrection is going to have to happen. So... The tribe of Ishmael, they sell Joseph to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar was a man of great wealth. And Joseph, he earned Potiphar's respect. So Joseph, as he lived in this home, he gained authority and he gained influence and he gained favor. So we read, so Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned with Joseph there, he didn't worry about anything except what kind of food to eat. It's almost if, even in the midst of the storm, even in the midst of brokenness, even in the midst of what appears at first to be one wrong turn after another, circumstances you wouldn't choose, a condition a condition that you would not wish upon your biggest enemy. But yet it seems that God is somehow involved in every step, in every circumstance, in every way. You see God's hand involved in Joseph's life even though there is pain, even though there is trouble, even though there are storms, even though there is difficulty, you continue to see God's hand Continuing to read, so Joseph 
He was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Now, I in my life have said dumb things. I think that we all have. Uh, We've probably posted something on social media that we immediately wish that we would take back. Imagine for an instance, for example, that your wife is like seven weeks away from giving birth to their third little girl, and you walk into the kitchen probably about an hour after dinner, and you notice that she's eating a bowl of cereal, which is absolutely her right and her prerogative, but you make the comment, didn't we just eat? That would be something very dumb. That would be, you would never say that. You don't want to be known as the guy who makes that comment. It would be dumb, right? I don't want to be known for that. But can you imagine in the most popular book ever written, the most translated book, be known, your five words, the contribution to that book was come and sleep with me. This is what Potiphar's wife is known for. This is how we remember her. But Joseph, he, he's a young man who issues self-control. And over and over and over, he continues to resist. Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in this entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held nothing back from me except for you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. So not only does Joseph issue self-control here, which is incredible, because oftentimes when we face difficult circumstances, when we find ourselves in a situation that we would not choose, uh, we kind of excuse sin in our lives. We think, I mean, with all the pressure, with all the bad stuff that has happened to me, don't I get this past? I mean, certainly God would understand. But Joseph resists, why? Because Joseph ultimately recognizes that all sin is ultimately against God himself. And that sin defined is anything other than God's very best for you and for me. And not only does Joseph do this once, but over and over and over. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of her way as much as possible. Meaning that he tried to to avoid the temptation. He tried to avoid the sin. He tried to avoid the very presence of temptation. How many of you know that temptation continues to seek us out? And she continued to seek Joseph out. And one day, as Joseph was literally fleeing from her presence, she took hold of his robe and he literally ran out of it. And she was so humiliated, she was so embarrassed that she went and she falsely accused Joseph of raping her. And she told her husband about what happened. And Potiphar, what was he going to do except Well, he threw Joseph into prison. And while in prison, Joseph, he began to grow in relationships, in influence, and even in prison, you could see God's hand, his providence, 
his love, his care. But you mean to tell me, Luke, all that Joseph did was he did the right thing and he ended up in prison. Absolutely. You know, oftentimes we believe that if you do the right thing, you will have the type of life that you desire, that you want. But that's not what Scripture says. And scripture reminds us that you can do the right thing and you can actually suffer because of it. You can do the right thing and you can find yourself being persecuted. You can do the right thing and you can find yourself in prison. I'll take it even one step further. You can be faithful and obedient and do the right thing and you can be crucified for it. In fact, doing the right thing, it's never easy. It's always uphill, but it is always, always worth it. So Joseph, he finds himself in prison and he becomes known to be able to interpret dreams. And soon he, he makes the acquaintance of, of two individuals from Pharaoh's castle, from his, from his empire, the baker and the cupbearer. Pharaoh has thrown them both into prison, most likely because he ate something or drank something that made him sick. And he had to figure out whose fault it was, so he threw the baker and the cupbearer into prison. And they both have this dream, and they go to Joseph, and they ask for an interpretation. And Joseph looks at the cupbearer, and he says, listen, good news for you. In three days, you're going to be released and you're gonna be restored. Well, this brings hope to the baker. So the baker says, what about me? What does my dream mean? And Joseph says, well, not such good news for you. In three days, you're literally gonna lose your head. You're gonna be executed. And in three days, both of these instances are fulfilled. They both come true. And as the cupbearer is leaving prison, Joseph reminds him, of what he has done for him and says, hey, listen, do not forget me. But the cupbearer does. He forgets him. In two years, Joseph sits in prison wondering what he did wrong, why he was here, what he was supposed to be doing in this moment. All he had done, once again, was be faithful to do the right thing and he was being punished for it. And don't many of us feel like that in the season? You receive the diagnosis or you're having financial problems or relational dysfunction and you feel like it's literally a prison and you sit there and you ask the question, why is God allowing this? What is he trying to teach me through this? Why am I being punished? All I have done is to the best of my ability be faithful and be obedient. So Pharaoh has this crazy dream. And it's like a little bit of a Walking Dead versus a Chick-fil-A kind of commercial. It's one of those kind of dreams. And he has no idea. And he brings all of his servants and all of his wise people around him. And nobody can give him a fair interpretation of what the dream means. And the cupbearer, all of a sudden remembers Joseph and he says, listen, I may have an answer for you. So he brings Joseph into the presence of Pharaoh 
And Pharaoh tells Joseph of the dream and Joseph talks about how there's gonna be a famine across the land and you're gonna have to store up. That's the only way that we're gonna survive this. But you need somebody who is wise, somebody who's intelligent to kind of oversee this operation. And then this is what Pharaoh says. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, Clearly, no one else is as intelligent or as wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court, and all of my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have rank higher than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for the second in command. And whenever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or a foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. So it is clear that God is showing favor to Joseph. I mean, it seems like every dead end that Joseph hits, it turns into a blessing. Every circumstance he finds himself in, he finds favor, he finds power, he finds authority. Is this just chance? Is this just circumstance? Is the season that you and I find ourselves in this morning, even though it may not be one that we would choose, is it just by chance? No, God is taking care of Joseph in this moment so that Joseph can take care of others. And that is our calling as well. God's grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness upon us, it is all an expression so that we can in return love others with the heart of Jesus in everything that we say and in everything that we do. So even though we may be inflicted by circumstances we would not choose, when you walk into that doctor's office, know that that is your platform that God is providing to you to be able to make much of his name, to give him glory, your job, your circumstances, your condition, the ball field, the classroom, wherever you go, you carry the light and the hope and the promise of Christ Jesus and Christ alone. So Joseph, he harvests all of these crops and he's storing them up where all the communities around him are beginning to starve. And Jacob, Joseph's father, he hears that there's food that's being rationed out in Egypt. So he sends his sons to go and to petition before Pharaoh and maybe he'll give us some food. And as the brothers are in the distance, Joseph sees them coming. Now, 22 years has passed by. 22 years of remembering what has been done to you. 22 years of storing up all of those emotions. And it's finally coming to an head. And, and just as one person leaves, the brothers draw closer and closer. And the brothers, they don't recognize Joseph but Joseph recognizes them. 
And as they stand before Joseph, making their plea for food, Genesis chapter 45, beginning in verse one. And Joseph could not stand it any longer. And there were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and he wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him and word quickly carried to Pharaoh's house. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. It is, my fa- is my father still alive? But the brothers, they were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. And Joseph says, please come closer. So they came closer and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So in a broken world, brothers become enemies. But because of God's hand, because of God's goodness, because of God's persistent nature of pursuing reconciliation for all of humanity, enemies become brothers. Through the avenue and through the path and through the next steps of reconciliation. So Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, some of the most famous words through this story. Joseph says to his brothers, you see, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for all good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. You see, God is always in the business of reconciliation. And no matter what you may be going through this morning, knowing that God works all things to the good of those who love and who serve him. So take hope and place our faith and our trust in the reality that God is always up to more than we can see and more than we know. God is in the business of reconciliation. Romans chapter five, verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we save by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, there is this change of relationship. Yes, enemies are becoming brothers, but in Christ, enemies become sons and daughters meaning that you and I, we at one point were all enemies of God because of the sin in our lives. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of Christ pursuing us, because Christ went to the cross and because of his perfect sacrifice, no longer enemies, but now we are considered sons 
and daughters. How does this happen? In Genesis 45, verse four, once again, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Come near to me, please. How did Joseph learn this? 22 years of reflecting, of processing. Think about the worst time you were hurt, the conversations that you had in your mind, the things that you said you would say if they walked into the room or if you saw them. And when that moment presents itself, Joseph, with just a command, could have all brothers killed or tortured. Joseph says, draw near to me. And he forgives them. How did he learn this? As I mentioned earlier, Joseph's father, he was a twin. His name was Jacob and his brother's name was Esau. And there was a sibling rivalry from the very beginning. In fact, scripture reminds us that when they came from the womb, Jacob had hold of Esau's heel, wanting to be first. From the very beginning, he was pursuing this birthright. Jacob was known to be a trickster, to be a deceiver. And he, he tricked his father into giving him the blessing of the elderly son. And then he tricked Esau out of the inheritance. And because of this, Jacob had to flee for a foreign land because Esau was going to kill him. Jacob was a mother's boy, where Esau, he, he was good with the bow. He was a hunter. He was a man's man. He was hairy, all right? So scripture says that Jacob, he was returning back. And from a distance, in Genesis 33, he sees Esau on a hill with 400 men, 400 warriors surrounding him. And scripture says that, that Jacob approached him and he fell on his face, kneeling down before Esau. But scripture says that Esau ran out to him and fell upon his neck and kissed him. And scripture says that Esau looked around at, at Jacob's family and he said, who is this? And Jacob said, it, it's all yours. I, I know I don't deserve your forgiveness. I know that I don't deserve to be welcomed back into the family, but please take everything that I have. And Esau's response, brother, I don't want anything from you except a relationship with you. And in Genesis 33, the only son of Jacob's that is called by name is that of Joseph. It's as if you could see God's providential hand from the very beginning putting on display for a young Joseph's eyes what true reconciliation looked like, even in circumstances he wouldn't choose even when he had been wronged by his brother. It reminds us of the story of the prodigal son where he betrays his father's trust 
and he heads off for a foreign land and he squanders all of his money. And scripture says that when he came to his end and he woke up, he knew that he wasn't deserving of his father's forgiveness or a place under his roof. So he came from a distance and scripture says that the father was looking for him and that when he saw him coming from the horizon, he ran after him. And as the son fell down on his face and bowed down before him, scripture says that he fell on his neck and he kissed him. Bring me the robe. Bring me the signet ring. Bring me the sandals. For this son of mine, he was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but he has come home. Do you think the hearers, when Jesus was teaching this, that they thought, isn't this like the story of Jacob and Esau, where a brother wronged another brother, and at the end of their journey, reconciliation, through forgiveness, through acceptance. This morning, what we know about the beautiful story of Jacob is how it parallels with the pursuit of Christ in us, through us, and with us. Christ is in the business of reconciliation. So this morning, no matter what you have done, no matter where you are, Jesus leans in and he says, come close. Come close. For many of us, we believe we have forfeited our right to the love of Jesus. Why? Because of poor choices and bad mistakes. Scripture says that we were all enemies of God. But because of Jesus, we have a new identity. We are sons and we are daughters. So with every head bowed and with every eye closed, this morning, no matter where you are, no matter what you have done, I want you to hear the words of Christ Jesus. He whispers to us, come near, come near. I can't love you from afar. I need you to come near. And in our shame and in our guilt and in our condemnation, we want to explain all the reasons we don't deserve that love in that grace, in that mercy. And we want to plead with God, hey God, you can have this and you can, and he's saying, I don't, I don't need anything from you. I just desire a relationship with you. And if you have yet to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, what are you waiting for? Come near, come near. And if over time you have you have ran, you have fled for a foreign land. Christ's reminder to us is the same, come near, come home. He is looking in the horizon, waiting for you to come home.
enemies, now sons and daughters. That is very good news. So Father God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Father, we are reminded that you are the way maker. Where there has been no way before, God, you were going before us. And Father, we can see your hand of grace and mercy every step of our way. Father, you came because you are in the business of reconciliation. So reconcile us with one another and reconcile us with you. We love you. We thank you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen. Thanks for listening to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church podcast. We hope this message has inspired you to take a next step in your walk with Jesus. For more messages or to watch our full worship gathering on demand, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com.